I saw it on Linden Street. Next month's theme has given me pause to go back and ruminate on my relationship with the man in question. You see, on one hand, he's responsible for creating content that I have really loved over the years, and it's become shorthand for weeding out those who don't appreciate fantastic exercises in horror or action films or even fantasy. On the other hand, he has turned into something of a sorehead, looking at the work he has done in the past as if, yeah, it was work, what of it? Receiving fans coldly when he interacts with them? That is, if he deigns to receive them at all? In some ways, John Carpenter has some very justified anger towards Hollywood, which seemed to be slowly closing the doors on him as he attempted to practice his craft over the last 30 years. I would argue his last truly good film was 1994's In the Mouth of Madness, a meditation on Lovecraftian horrors in the modern age. And while it is now regarded as something of a cult classic, it was not well received upon its release. Nor were any of his follow-up films, 1995's remake of Village of the Damned, 96's Escape from L.A., 98's Vampires, oof, and by the time we cross over to the millennium, a string of critical and commercial failures all. Carpenter ended up walking away from filmmaking, and I think, much to his own personal disappointment and anger, Hollywood didn't try to stop him. Now, I was awesomely introduced to John Carpenter by my Uncle Tim, and I'm thankful for it. Standing at the age of 11 in my grandmother's kitchen, we were talking about movies, and he was making a point about me going back and watching some good action classics. And that's when he asked me, have you ever seen Assault on Precinct 13? Or, or better, how about Escape from New York? I had not, and this floored him. Which in retrospect should not have, because A, my parents were decidedly square and he should have known it. And more importantly, B, I must reiterate, I was 11. My chief concern at the time was getting my hands on a bunch of Jurassic Park merchandise and trying to acquire as much Star Wars paraphernalia as I could. To him, this was a great injustice. So the next time I saw him, he lent me his copy of Escape from New York, and I had my mind blown by Kurt Russell, playing a hardened ex-soldier anti-hero Snake Plissken, sent on a suicide mission to retrieve the President of the United States from the island of Manhattan, which in the future was turned into a city-sized prison. It was tough, it was cool, violent, slick, and you're telling me there's more of this shit out there? Sign me up. S.D. Pliskin, American, Lieutenant, Special Forces Unit, Black Blight. Two Purple Hearts, Leningrad and Siberia. Youngest man to be decorated by the President. He robbed the Federal Reserve Depository. Life sentence, New York Maximum Security Penitentiary. I'm ready to kick your ass out of the
Justice Commissioner. Bob Hawk. Special Forces Unit, Texas Thunder. We heard of you too, please. Why are we talking? I have a deal for you. You received full pardon for every criminal action you committed in the United States. It was an accident. About an hour ago, a small jet went down inside New York City. The president was on board. The president of what? That's not funny, Plisco. You go in, find the president, bring him out in 24 hours, and you're a free man. 24 hours, huh? I'm making you an offer. Bullshit. Straight, just like I said. I'll think about it. No time. Give me an answer. Get a new president. We're still at war, Pliskin. You need him alive. I don't give a fuck about your war. Or your president. Is that your answer? Thinking about it. Think hard. You flew the Gulf Fire over Leningrad. You know how to get in quiet. You're all I've got. I guess I go in one way or the other. Doesn't mean shit to me. Give me the paper. When you come out? Before. I told you I wasn't a fool. Call me Snake. When I got to high school, I usurped my father's blockbuster card and I made it a point to drill through as much John Carpenter as I could get my hands on, which included me renting my way through The Thing, They Live, The Fog, Halloween, Dark Star, Prince of Darkness, amongst others. The Thing, particularly, was a film that worked its charms on me. I love the brooding paranoia of it all, as well as the over-the-top but oh-so-brilliantly-made-to-gross-out practical effects just the work of the great Rob Bottin. I would talk about it to anybody who would listen, but that was true about me talking about films in general. I was a freshman in college by the time I got around to actually getting a copy of Assault on Precinct 13, and while I was late to the party, it was still well worth it. I got to experience the fun of turning people on to John Carpenter's work for the first time, and that, as always, has given me a thrill. five years old when I saw it came from outer space. It was in 3D. It was its first release. And uh, that I was basically so young then, I was not quite sure what was going on. But we had these, these, these cheesy glasses that you wore. And the opening of that movie has this spaceship or meteor coming down. And it, there's a shot where it comes right into the camera and blows up. Well, it scared the they scared the shit out of me, man. I was terrified. So I jumped up and actually literally ran from the seat. But when I got to the back of the theater, I, I realized, wow, that's pretty cool. What's this all about? So I went back and sat down. I was pre-understanding uh, what I was seeing on the screen. It was unclear. Was this, what was this? Was this, I didn't understand the projection idea. I didn't understand this was made. It was just viscerally hit me. Probably did more damage to me than anything else, but that got me really excited about movies. By his own admission, he was a strange kid. 
John Howard Carpenter was born January 16, 1948 to Milton Jean and Howard Ralph Carpenter in Carthage, New York. Howard was a music professor who relocated the family to Bowling Green, Kentucky in 1953 to teach at Western Kentucky University. And it's no coincidence that young John would get to be a composer in his own right. He struggled with his identity in his youth, fearing a loss of control. In Kentucky in the late 1950s and 60s, when all the other boys were out playing sports, John was obsessing about westerns and science fiction films, running around Bowling Green armed with a Super 8 camera, making his own movies. Great practice for sure, but it did make him an outsider looking in. I started making movies when I was eight. My father gave me an eight millimeter movie camera. <clears throat> I started uh, shooting my friends in various films, animating uh, clay monsters, and basically what every film geek did back in the, in the when I grew up. I was in the fifties. I think maybe after I saw Forbidden Planet in 1956, I decided, you know, I have to do this because I invested so much of myself in the movies. Uh, for a variety of reasons, I found escape in, in, in the movie theater, watching films from um, troubles uh, that, I, that I had as a kid. He enrolled in Western Kentucky University, but transferred to the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts, where he got some attention for writing and directing a short student film entitled Captain Voyeur in 1969. Upon reflection, one can see by the pacing and the shots chosen, the story is about a man who follows a woman back to her home, Carpenter would end up fine-tuning this style and would later apply these techniques to his film Halloween. On his next project, Carpenter worked with director James Rokos and wrote, co-produced, edited, and scored the short film The Resurrection of Bronco Billy in 1970, which did two things. First, it started a years-long partnership with fellow USC student Nick Castle, who wrote with him on the project, and second, it won an Academy Award for Best Short Film. Call it hubris, call it arrogance, but Carpenter decided that he was done with school. He dropped out of USC to team up with Castle and fellow USC student Dan O'Bannon, He's going to have a month of his own here one day soon, don't worry, I assure you. They got together to work on a full-length sci-fi comedy called Dark Star. Carpenter had the idea of a dilapidated ship taking a crew of men on a 20-plus year mission as a scout ship that would go ahead and blow up potentially harmful planets that would interfere with humanity's colonization of the stars. The crew are more than a little crazy with cabin fever by the time we get to see them in the film, and the whole ordeal takes on a very Dr. Strangelove feel set in space. It was weird, it was funny, and it got both Carpenter and O'Bannon noticed. O'Bannon notably would go on to utilize the silly alien mascot of the film, often referred to as a beach ball with claws, that was always skulking about in the air ducts, he would reuse that for far scarier ends when he would pen a little film called Alien just a few years later. Mm -hmm. 
true. Mankind has conquered the stars. He moves out to the endless interstellar reaches of the universe. An advanced exploration corps, a new breed of pioneer must seek out unstable planets and destroy them. Drive sequence begun. Hit it, pin back. First century planet smashers. Dark Star. Here's the tragedy. As with most things associated with Dan O'Bannon, he and Carpenter did not weather the project amicably. Now, nobody threw punches or outright badmouthed the other, but O'Bannon as was often the case, felt used and unappreciated. And when Carpenter got juice to make his next low-budget feature, that would be next week's Assault on Precinct 13, it was O'Bannon who cagely assessed that with all of the carnage on screen, he felt it was related to how Carpenter threw away relationships with people. His disdain for human beings would be serviced if he could make a film without people in it. Now, again, what I think we're dealing with here were two thin-skinned, hot-headed young men, both out to prove something. And O'Bannon was known to get very jealous of his contemporaries, and Carpenter was known to be wildly uncompromising when he was making films. But I have to say, at least in Carpenter's defense here, he had had partnerships with people that have gone on and lasted for decades, so I don't think Dan was really being totally fair in that assessment. Regardless of who started what, it honestly was too bad that they had a falling out so early in their careers, because both of them could have made so much cool stuff together. We will cover Assault on Precinct 13 properly, but suffice to say, it allowed for Carpenter to go on and make the film most people equate to him, 1978's Halloween. A thriller that contributed to, but did not start, the slasher genre as many people incorrectly cite. It helped launch the career of a young Jamie Lee Curtis and cemented the working relationship of Carpenter and his producer Deborah Hill, who would have each other's backs on productions for over the next quarter century. It also made Carpenter a mint. The production was all independent. He shot the film for $300,000, and by the end of its run, Halloween had grossed $65 million at the box office. To add insult to injury for people who wanted to dismiss him, Carpenter had penned a little story that same year, which was made with Faye Dunaway and Tommy Lee Jones as The Eyes of Laura Mars, which was directed by Erwin Kirshner. That made money. In 1979, he shot a made-for-TV biofilm, Elvis, with a soon-to-be regular collaborator. That would be a young Kurt Russell. And both of them were lauded for it. To top it all off, that same year, Carpenter married actress Adrienne Barbeau. 
with whom he had met shooting a television film a few years prior. no understanding and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death of, of good or evil right or wrong I met this six-year-old child with this blank pale emotionless face and the blackest eyes the devil's eyes I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. What do we do? He's been here once tonight. I think he'll come back. I'm going to wait for him. I still think I should notify the radio and television. No. If you do that, they'll see him on every street corner. They'll look for him in every house. Just tell your men to keep their mouths shut and their eyes open. Carpenter gets labeled as a wonder kind, and in 1980, it sees him release a ghostly pirate tale, The Fog, and it's commercially successful. 1981, he teams up with Kurt Russell for our second film this month, Escape from New York, and it too is commercially successful. Now, as he's doing this, Carpenter may not be loved by all of the critics. They certainly weren't interested in what he was putting out. But the public is buying tickets, and if your studio is following his projects, he seems to just be wandering through the genre forest, eating leaves and shitting money. And these studios wanted in. And that is when he decided to make the film that I personally feel defines his legacy and cements him as one of the all-time great directors, while simultaneously being the box office bomb that set him off. 1982's The Thing, which we will also be covering for the month of March. After that, while the quality of his pictures was never compromised, Carpenter embarked on a string of films throughout the 1980s that are almost all certifiably labeled cult classics, and yet he seemed to be the victim of the law of diminishing returns when it came to public interest in his films. He did have a decent showing when it came to his 1983 adaptation of Stephen King's novel Christine, revolving around a murderous Plymouth Fury. He made a science fiction romance film, Starman, in 1984 with Karen Allen and Jeff Bridges, and it did make a modest sum. Still, things were not up to par for him. That year, Barbeau and Carpenter welcomed a son, John Jr., in the spring of 1984, but by the fall of the same year, they would be divorced. 
1986 saw him team up with Kurt Russell again for the action fantasy comedy Big Trouble in Little China. That is going to be a future episode for sure. And it barely made back half of its budget. We will be covering 1987's atmospheric and strange Prince of Darkness for the month of March, and it too made, again, a very modest sum, as did 1988's They Live, but it felt like only a specific audience was now really paying attention to any of Carpenter's work, and mainstream moviegoers were just passing him by. And that is a shame, because all three of those movies are amazing films in their own right. Express, and I'm talking to whoever's listening out there. Like I told my last wife, I says, honey, I never drive faster than I can see. Besides that, it's all in the reflexes. Just listen to the old Pork Chop Express and take his advice on a dark and stormy night, all right? When some wild-eyed, eight-foot-tall maniac grabs your neck, taps the back of your favorite head up against a barroom wall, and he looks at crooked in the eye, and he asks you if you've paid your dues. Well, you just stare that big sucker right back in the eye, and you remember what old Jack Burton always says at a time like that. Have you paid your dues, Jack? Yes, sir, the check is in the mail. If the late 80s was a period where Carpenter would see some decline, the 90s would prove to be a bruising slog. Now, on the personal side, he did marry his longtime script supervisor, Sandy King, and he would go on to work with her on multiple, multiple projects during the decade. Carpenter did kick off the 90s filming the sci-fi comedy Memoirs of an Invisible Man with Chevy Chase and Daryl Hannah, and that was a commercial and critical failure. Again, I enjoy John, but it just wasn't good. Carpenter returned to form, at least, in 1994, rallying with the aforementioned Lovecraftian horror and our final film of this month, which will be In the Mouth of Madness. It's unique, it's smart, and, at least at the time, it wasn't seen by a heck of a lot of folks. It barely made back its budget. The next year, he made a remake of the classic 1960 film, The Village of the Damned, based on the novel The Midwich Cuckoos by John Windham. Classic British sci-fi horror. It should be great. It checks all the boxes. And it has Christopher Reeve, Kirstie Alley, Michael Paré, and Mark Hamill, as well as a young Meredith Salinger. It should have been amazing. It's fun. It's an interesting update. But to the masses? Again, uninteresting, and it tanked at the box office. Welcome to the theater. For everyone's enjoyment, we'd like to remind you of the following rules. No talking. No smoking. No littering. No red meat. No freedom of religion. And remember, all marriages must be approved by the Department of Health. Failure to obey these rules 
will result in immediate loss of citizenship and deportation to the island of Los Angeles. Enjoy the show. Your rules are really beginning to annoy me. We ran a psycho profile on him using a database of five million sociopathic personalities. He hit the bottom of the curve. Catches on quick, doesn't she? Carpenter re-teamed with Kurt Russell to do a sequel to Escape from New York, the 1996 film Escape from L.A. A large cast of character actors, a fun plot, still a tough-as-nails anti-hero in the form of Russell playing Snake Plissken. And again, it was entertaining, but mixed reviews from critics and the fact that it only made back 25 of its $50 million budget. Oh, it was bruising. 1998 came. Vampires. Starring James Woods, Daniel Baldwin, and a really, really awful script. It barely made back its money domestically. Carpenter launched the new millennium with his pen script, The Ghost of Mars, a story that he had originally conceived as the third film of what would have been a Snake Plissken trilogy, but since Escape from L.A. was a non-starter, he ended up developing it into a spin-off tale of its own right, where awful Martian spirits possess human being hosts and then attack local colonists who are living and thriving on Mars. It's goofy. It's a great cast again. Includes Natasha Henstridge, a young Jason Statham, Ice Cube, and Pam Greer. And yet again, a critical and commercial bomb. Have you ever seen a vampire? They're not romantic. Forget whatever you've seen in the movies. They don't turn into bats. Crosses don't work. You want to kill one? You drive a wooden stake right through his heart. We think we got a nest inside this place. Let's get to work. Figure out at least six goons, maybe more. Chances are we'll find a master in here somewhere. Vampires. 
to one thing. After 600 years, how's that dick working? Pretty good? Understandably, he turned away. He dabbled in some projects. He produced a few films here and there, but Carpenter, on the whole, turned inward. He created music. He would have some angry interactions with fans who had come to hear him speak at conventions and festivals. Heck, a few years ago, he had a very public scuffle with a, albeit disrespectful, fan, and the exchange ended with Carpenter telling the gentleman to just fuck off. Even in interviews, he would come across as perturbed and being very short with people who were just trying to sing his praises. In 2010, he came out of retirement to make a small film entitled The Ward, which was met with mixed reviews and some interest that seems to view his legacy as just this thing that used to be wonderful. It almost seems like Carpenter himself used his own creative cinematic legacy as something to be mourned. And that has always made me wonder, look, you wanted to be a film director, you became a film director, you had wanted to go and say that you would finance your own pictures and you wanted to make westerns, but you never did. I always am left scratching my head at that one. He accomplished the first part, but at some point over the 50 years that he has spent behind the lens of a camera, Carpenter has never set forth to make the thing that he claimed he loved. What stopped him from doing that? What stopped the bulk of his projects from being produced in a successful fashion? He wrote his own stories. He took it upon himself to do the casting. Look, I know I'm just a fan, and I live in the Midwest. I have no connections to Hollywood. I am admitting right now, I don't know what I'm speaking of. I'm only wildly speculating. And yet... It's not fair, and it's not right, and I feel we've all been robbed, as John Carpenter has been robbed, of having proper due given. These days, Carpenter plays his music. He records with his son. He gives stage shows where he will play songs from his films while they show scenes behind him. Hey look, I'll admit, I'm simultaneously both cool on the idea, and I kinda think it's a colossal waste of huge talent. I'll be honest here, I've gone back and I've looked at interviews with John Carpenter that he has given over the last 30 years. And I have to say, when I look at those, even in the last 10 years, the genius, the talent, it's all there. But. There's an undercurrent of, I have no time for your bullshit, and that's there too. The man has a motor, and that's what makes it so uneven when it comes to covering John Carpenter's career. But, he has not always been, and hopefully he will not always remain angry. And hey, if he comes across to you here in this talk, more power to you. It is my hope that one day he will get behind the camera again and he will wow us with the talents that he has and we know he possesses.
John Carpenter has been and always will be a talent. One that makes me angry from time to time, but one that comes across when you talk to him or hear him speak. It is a pity at times, but hey, it is my hope that one day he will get behind the camera again and wow us with the talents we know he actually possesses. In the end, we are left with this stunning and impressive filmography to fall back on of Mr. Carpenter's gift to us. And so, that all being said, it is my great pleasure to present to you this month of our salute to John Carpenter's genius. His attention to detail, his brooding paranoia, his bleak anti-hero sentiment, all of them are welcome here. I Saw It on Linden Street is honored to announce that March is dedicated to the theme of A Simple Carpenter, and we hope you will join us in celebrating the man, his work, and everything that goes along with it. So remember folks, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there everybody. <laughs>